Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What are you waiting for? Come on in. This podcast may contain graphic content and strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, girls. Girls, we're on. Hello. Hello. Hi, girls. How are you? Well, I'm getting better by the second. So, everyone, welcome to Murder, Mischief, and Moscato. We have decided to let you know that this is going to be our last episode ever. (laughs) We're going to... uh, Move into mansions because we are now millionaires due to uh, the overwhelming success of the show. So we don't need you anymore. Oh my God. <laughs> it's April Fools. Oh Jesus! <laughs> she really had me. <laughs> I'd like to reach out and touch someone now. <laughs> That was a really good April Fool's joke because you totally got Mary. I knew right where you were going and Mary's freaking out over here. It's no, fantastic. I knew she was kidding, but I didn't connect it with the whole April Fool's thing. Oh my god! it was so unplanned. It just, I opened my mouth and had no idea at that point even where the joke was going or what I was going to say. So oh. it was like a stream of unconscious, unconscious, a stream of unconscious thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. That that was funny. That was so oh my good. God. I was just like, I, 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 I. <laughs> I love April Fool's Day. Absolutely <laughs> love messing with people. Oh. <laughs> April <laughs> Fool's, guys. <laughs> All right. So, um, bonus episode. This is a bonus episode for April Fool's Day. Free of charge. Um, you're going to get no Moscato because we always do a cider tasting. We didn't last bonus episode. Okay, we almost always do cider tastings. We did chocolate wine. We should do two to make up for it. Oh, we always do multiple cider tastings. Yeah. If you were here, we'd share with you, but you're not, so. We could all get hammered together. Instead, Han and I will get hammered for you. And I will drink coffee and uh, eat a banana. She'll be our designated driver. I want to tell you, Lynn. Remember the last time that we um, recorded together and you ended up drinking on your side and we were drinking on our side? Was that when I found the wine that I hadn't drank the night before? We did talk about that that day. Yeah. Yes. And yeah, you, you got a little loopy, I got a little loopy. 
My and, mom voice came out apparently. And Hannah tried to rein us in multiple times and it just wasn't happening. <laughs> uh, I got loopy, really? A little bit. Oh. A little bit. I drank more than the wine from the night before because I, yeah, I only had a couple of sips. I think you had stuff in your coffee too. Oh, yeah, that'll do yeah. it. That'll do. Yeah, that was a fun episode to edit, not. <laughs> All right, okay. back this, on track. This is why it's good that I don't drink, because I rarely drink, so when I do, I get loopy really fast. All right, let's get back on track, ladies. Hannah's trying to rein us in again. That's so, so no, so no Moscato today. Nope, no Moscato, but some mischief. A lot of mischief and a little tiny bit of murder. Huh. I don't know if right. I have any murder. Oh, I do. Okay. Oh, I, I don't remember I if I did. I don't know. I have a little murder. I don't know. I have a lot of stuff. So you have a little murder. Is murder something you have a quantity of? I have a little murder as opposed to a lot of murder. Yes. 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 It's like being kind of pregnant. Yeah. Sort of. Okay. A little bit pregnant. And I just realized, isn't a murder also what they call a thing of ravens or crows? Aren't they a murder? Yes. Yeah. Murder of of ravens? Yeah. Murder of crows? I think so. I think you're right. All right, ladies. So you could have a little murder of cravens. <laughs> a little murder of cravens. Well, if you don't know if it's a crow or a raven, you combine them and you call them a craven. That's what we do when we're out and see one. And we're like, I wish oh, you it's a craven. I wish you could see Hannah's face. It's the mom thing coming right out, and we haven't oh, even freaking started. Like wild cats, we are like wild cats, you and I, and she's trying to hurt us. Come on, go this way. Go this way. We're like, <laughs> Okay, She's listen. On a roll. Listen, I have she to tell you. She doesn't need us today. <laughs> yesterday at work, I had a customer say to me towards the end of our interaction, do you have any pets? And I said, I have two cats. And she didn't say anything else. And as she was leaving, she said, tell your cats. I said, meow, meow. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, that's, that's actually hysterical. I'm going to start doing that just to mess with people because that is, that's one of those weird random things that people will tell other people yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. So guys, anyway, we are going to go back on track. <laughs> right. Bonus episode for April Fool's cider tasting. We are doing, I faked my own death because you know, we always do something different and we try to make it really fun for our bonus episodes and we always throw them in there free of charge. As opposed to the unbelievably expensive charge for all of our regular episodes. You know it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's talk a minute. Faking your own death. Yeah. It's actually known as pseudocide. Yes. It's been around for centuries. Yes. This is not a new thing. Nope. Which I actually was a little surprised to learn that people have been faking their death for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yes. I actually have some of those stories. Me too. Sadly, though, most people who fake their own death lack the comprehension of the potential consequences of faking their death. Not just for themselves, but for the people they're leaving behind. And most people who fake their own death lack the skills and the intelligence to successfully pull it off. Which is why we have the stories we have. Right. Now, the reasons that people might believe that faking their own death is a good idea, they range from simple and almost silly to the very complicated 
and in some cases, completely incomprehensible to anyone other than themselves. Are you aware that faking your own death isn't illegal? Yes, and I'm going to get there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Your minute's up. Um, this is my first, so you can fuck off. And her claws are out. Meow! Hold on. I'm going to drink to that. You should probably tell people what we're drinking. We haven't done that yet. <laughs> so we are starting. We are starting with Rainbow Seeker from Blake's Hard Cider. It is a pineapple hard cider, and it is from the Kinder Cider series. I just want to say before you tell us how it tastes. That name alone makes me really sad that I'm not there. I'm like, that's I. That's one of those ones I would buy just for the name alone. I'm like, Rainbow Seeker. It is I cool. And I, I actually thought that this was very appropriate because, you know, people who fake their own death, they're seeking the other side of the rainbow, Rainbow Seeker. Oh, that's clever, Hannah. Can you see this? And that pan is so cute rainbow secret i'm gonna see if i can find that blake's is a michigan company so you may not be able to find it i don't know where all they are are distributed to it is really nice down to keep some for when i get there as soon as your weather clears up okay sounds like a good plan sweet okay so rainbow seeker delicious Mm. that is really lovely I like that one. Mm-hmm. So while you're while you're doing that, we should introduce ourselves also. Oh, oh hey. shit! <laughs> Do we want to just try yeah, this whole thing like, over? Who the hell are these whack jobs? How did I get onto this? I'm Hannah Green. I'm Mary Swartz. And I am Lynn Samuels. And absolutely no, not one of us knows what we're doing today. And you are listening to tell me something. No, you're not. <laughs> We already introduced the podcast itself. It's okay, because okay. Hannah did that last week, and I left it in. <laughs> Great. All right, so some of the most common reasons that people might desire to fake their own death is to change their identity, to escape prosecution from the law, to escape an unhappy life or an abusive relationship, to get out of debt, to make money, usually in the form of insurance fraud. To see how popular they are. And the reason that may be the very most bizarre that I can imagine. Most, there are, some people fake their own death for the attention or as a prank. And I actually found one who faked his yep. death to see how popular he was. Yep. And I also found one who faked his own death, turned around and testified at the trial of his murderers. Yep. Wow. Yeah. I, I I would think maybe if I were going to, it would simply be because when you're dead, you don't get to go to your own funeral. And I'm kind of curious what I my would. funeral looks like. So I'd like to fake my death just so that I can be like, okay, all right, that was like the dress rehearsal for the real thing. No, you, that music, no, not, no, you need to get rid of that song. I don't like that. Or, you know, or uh, that dress, no, not a good one. You should wear something else to my real one. <laughs> All right. And hear what people say, too. Yeah. I want to know what people are going to say. Yeah, because I'm going to wear a wig and a hat and some sunglasses, so nobody knows who I am. 
Modern mass surveillance and facial recognition software actually make it incredibly hard to successfully pull off faking your own death in modern times. The common use of credit cards, cell phones, and social media, along with the use of social security numbers and government-issued picture ID for pretty much everything in life, also adds to the difficulty. Yeah. Now, while it isn't actually illegal to fake your own death, charges frequently arise from identity theft and insurance fraud. You can also be required by the courts to repay the costs incurred from a search for you. As well you should. However, if you simply walk away, you don't steal an identity, you don't leave anything to suggest you are dead to lead to a search or an investigation, and you don't try to make any insurance claims, you technically have not broken any laws. Okay, I, I have something to say. If you are dead, how can you claim your own insurance? Because that's kind of what you just said. Frequently, people who are doing this with, to claim insurance, they have an accomplice. Right. A significant other, etc. Yeah. But if you fake your own death, and insurance is claimed, you can be charged with insurance fraud. Okay. Adults do have the right to disappear if they want to, and sometimes they do choose to. That's a topic for a whole other episode. Okay. Mary? <clears throat> I faked my own death. Well, you look damn good for a dead person. Don't I, though? According to legend, Jacquo Delahaye was born in St. Dominique in modern Haiti around 1600 and she was the daughter of a french father and a haitian mother and she spoke french okay it is said sense. that her mother died in childbirth and that her father was murdered when she was young so she turned to piracy to provide for herself and her younger mentally disabled brother some reports state that she was in pi- partnership with another female partner by the name of anne du Bay from France. Well, I've heard of her. She and her gang of ragtag pirates would overtake small boats and they would plunder any treasure that they could find. Now, men pirates took a little bit of offense at this because she was slightly successful. All right, she was more than slightly. She was successful and men pirates, they were offended that a female was making them look bad. So they went out and they put a bounty on her head. Uh, After this, at one point during her reign... As Pirate Queen, Delahaye was captured by authorities, and she allowed that to happen on purpose, because she knew that there was a bounty on her head. Makes sense. Okay. And then she turned around and forced her death in order to escape. Forced her death? She forced... She faked her death to escape. Sorry. She felt forced to fake her death. She faked her death and got away. You've had like two sips of cider and you can't talk. I know. After she faked her death, she escaped. She lived in hiding as a man for a number of years, but um, that really wasn't her comfort zone. So after that point, she reunited with her crew, and she returned to her piracy days. She led a gang of hundreds of pirates. They actually went on to claim an entire Caribbean island as their own, the island of Tortuga. Oh. Yeah. Several years later, she actually died in a shootout while she was defending the island. Not only was Delahaye a successful pirate, but she had one of the best nicknames around. Thanks to her stage death and the color of her hair, they called her Back from the Dead Red. Oh, that's very cool. It was rumored that she had a daughter named Dinah Delahaye, who actually shared her mother's 
um, very um, conspicuous red hair. Um, it was rumored that D Dinah grew up to be a master swordswoman, and she was also a pirate who commanded a small fleet of ships, although I couldn't find any any documentation of that actually being real. Okay. I did not learn how she actually faked her death, but I thought, you know, this goes back to 1600. All right. So, yeah. Very cool. All right, Lynn, what have you got for us? I bring you Amy Semple McPherson. I have not Amy heard of her. Born in 1890, Amy was arguably the most popular faith healer and evangelist in the 1920s, breaking attendance records set by male evangelists. In 1922, 30,000 people came to one of her events, causing the Marines to have to be called in to help with crowd control. Wow. Yeah. A lot of the, the male evangelists did not like her because she was showing them up. In 1923, she founded the Four Square Gospel Church with a capacity of 5,300 people. Remember, that's in the 20s. Yeah. 5,300 people. Service there was held seven days a week, and there was a full house almost every single day. Holy crap. Yeah. Yeah, she was big. She was very, very big. On May 18th, 1926, 36-year-old Amy went swimming and disappeared. According to her secretary, Emma Schaefer, Amy disappeared while swimming between Venice and Ocean Park near Los Angeles, California, where her church was located. Rescues, rescuers were immediately called in to search, and soon many of her devoted followers were combing the beach, praying and crying, distraught over her disappearance, begging God to return their beloved leader. One church member was so distraught over the disappearance, she actually drowned herself right there on the beach while the searchers were looking. Oh my God, that's horrid. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Another rescuer drowned while searching the water for her. So there's two dead and no body. The rescue team brought in dynamite to try and get her body to surface. After several explosions, still no body, except the fish. There were a lot of dead fish. I wonder if they used the dead fish to feed the masses. Oh my God. <laughs> days of searching they finally called it off and then rumors slowly began to surface like the dead fish that were now rotting along the shore of the vast stretch of the coast she wasn't dead she went to have a secret abortion or was that an illicit love affair that took her away a detective in san francisco who knew her told authorities that he had actually seen her at a railway station days after she went missing her mother received Two ransom notes. The first requiring $50,000 and requested no police involvement for her safe return. The second required half a million dollars in ransom. Not believing them because she felt her daughter really was dead, she didn't pay either one and threw them both out. Her disappearance dominated the newspapers. It was the main headline for a very long time and sightings were continuing to be reported. Five weeks after she went missing, Amy turned up in Agua Prieta, Sonora, Mexico, just south of Douglas, Arizona. She had a crazy story for the authorities. Amy said she was fleeing kidnappers. She had been kidnapped after swimming by three Americans that then drove her across the border into Mexico, where she was drugged and held in a shack. They were holding her until they received a half a million dollar ransom. 
Amy claimed she was able to saw through the ropes and escape, dragging herself across an entire desert to get to safety. <laughs> Upon her arrival back in Los Angeles, 50,000 people showed up at the train station she came home on to welcome her. Oh, my God. Yeah. After a welcome, she decided that she needed to have a huge parade for all of these people, which made some people question her story more than they already were. Authorities were struggling to believe her story, and they began an investigation based on the many witnesses who said they saw her after she went missing. And she was actually eventually called before a grand jury. Interestingly, during the same period she was missing, Kenneth Ormiston, a married engineer at a local radio station, also went missing. Kenneth and Amy regularly worked together on her show on the radio station. And he admitted to the police that while missing, he was actually having an affair in a cabin in California. But he said it was not with Amy. It was with some other identified woman he never named. A judge found enough evidence to have her stand trial for fraud. But the prosecutor decided that some of the witnesses were not reliable enough and actually dropped the charges. Over the next 18 years, Amy was embroiled in many lawsuits. In fact, at one point, she had 45 legal actions on the docket at one time. Oh my gosh. Yeah. She was also accused many times of financial shenanigans. Nothing was ever proven, though. Until her death in 1944 of second all overdose, Amy's believers continued to believe her and her detractors continued to believe she was a lying, thieving, manipulative woman. Wow. Damn, girl. Yep. You picked a doozy. Yep. Two people died because That's... of her actions. So here's a little fact that I didn't mention in the beginning. But I will mention now that you've brought up yours. Drowning is the number one way people fake their death because of a lack of body. That makes sense. Yeah. Yep. All right. I bring you Joan of Leeds. Okay. Also known as Johannes de Leeds. All right. Bring it, bring it on, girl. Now, Joan of Leeds was a nun in England. And in 1318... She decided she was bored with her life in the convent at St. Clemens by York. She wanted more. Now, sadly, Joan became very, very ill and she passed away soon afterwards. But not really. I didn't think so. <laughs> and her fellow nuns held a funeral and they buried her body. But not really. <laughs> Joan was fine. <clears throat> What the nuns buried was really a fake body that Joan had created to pass off for a burial. Scholars have theorized in the not-so-distant past, actually. Like, I want to say it was like 2018 <clears throat> or 2019 that this whole story kind of started to come together. Um, scholars have theorized that it may have been nothing more than a shroud filled with dirt that the nuns buried and called a body. Now... There's no way that at least a few of her fellow nuns weren't in on this. That's kind of what I wondered. And I'm sorry, don't you take like a vow of honesty or something? <clears throat> I don't know. 
Not long after her death, word was received by the Archbishop of York, his name was William Melton, that Joan had been seen alive in Beverly, Yorkshire, England, where she was living with a man. <gasps> scandalous. Very scandalous. The Archbishop wrote to the church officials in Beverly. He shared the details of Joan's faults and her lies and all of her deception, and he demanded that she be returned to St. Clement's. But to this day, scholars don't know if the church ever returned Joan to St. Clement's. I don't know how they could make her go, but they we're talking the 1300s. I know. That's crazy. Craziness. A nun. A, A nun. nun. In the 1300s. Wow. All right. Timothy Dexter was born in Malden in the province of Massachusetts Bay. Timothy had almost no schooling, and he dropped out of school to work as a farm laborer at the age of eight. And by the age of 16, Timothy was a tanner's apprentice. In 1769, Timothy moved to Newburyport, Massachusetts, where he met and he married 32-year-old Elizabeth Frothingham. Now, Elizabeth just happened to be a rich widow. Timothy Dexter actually happened to get into his own fortune when he made some lucky financial decisions regarding speculation, and he instantly became one of the richest men in Boston. Timothy Dexter built two ships, and he began an export business to the West Indies and Europe. Now, because he severely lacked in his education, people kind of looked at him and thought he made some very peculiar business choices. Like, Timothy sent bed warmers and mittens to the West Indies to sell them to the locals. Timothy exported Bibles to the East Indies, and he sent a uh, shipload of cats to the Caribbean. <laughs> Somehow... Fortune looked upon him, and these things actually did work out. But high society people never really took to, to, to Timothy because he was uneducated. He wasn't really one of them. He had actually married into his money. His wife, Elizabeth, was independently wealthy, and she certainly she did not care for the lavish stables, the gaudy statues, and the way he uh, used his money to make himself look important. Okay. She considered that the things he was doing was like littering across their property. It was he, tasteless. Yeah, he was very much into gaudy. Tacky. Um, and she especially did not like the statue of Dexter himself that he had commissioned and put on the property. Oh. Now, Dexter went so far as to call himself Lord and decide that he was a Lord and demanded that all of his servants address him that way. Wow. So his countrymen disapproved of him, high society snubbed him, and his relationship with his own family suffered. So when people would come to visit, Timothy told them that his wife had died. What? <laughs> and that the woman they thought they were seeing was her ghost. Oh my god. And eventually, Timothy decided to fake his own death so he could figure out how people really felt about him. So he came up with a, a ruse and he entrusted a few men to organize a really grand funeral that 3,000 people actually attended, believing that he was dead. While his children were putting on an appropriate display of grief, and I really couldn't tell if they actually knew were in on the plot or not, he was actually watching from afar. 
and they said it was in a lavish tomb built in the basement of his home. At this point in time, Timothy decided that his wife was a little too happy about him being dead. Oh, well, gee, imagine that. So, he marched into the kitchen where she was, decided to berate her, hit her with his cane, and then just walked around among the people, talking to them as if nothing had happened. I don't understand. Isn't his wife dead and a ghost, though? That's what he was telling people, but she wasn't really dead. No, she, I get that, but if he's telling people she's dead, then I'm just thinking. Hard to say. Oh, he was he, definitely an odd character. At the age of 50, Timothy Dexter became an author, and he wrote he wrote a book that is famous for having absolutely no punctuation in it. <laughs> what? The book is entitled A Pickle for the Knowing Ones. It's a book with 8,847 words. Over 33,000 letters, and not a single piece of punctuation. And it had some weird spelling and some odd capitalization. It sounds like my dad wrote a porno. I think it might have been worse. So unfortunately for Dexter, he never really received the respect he felt he deserved, and he died for real this time on October 23rd of 1806. His book... His book sold so many copies, it was reprinted eight times. Oh my God. It's available on Amazon for 72 cents for Kindle, $17.63 for a hardcover, and $4.58 for a paperback, if anyone wishes to read this book. A pickle for the knowing ones. <laughs> wow. All right. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free and anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lynn, what you got for us? <clears throat> what do I have? Wahana, I will see your nun and raise you a reverend. Yep. These religious people. Reverend Philip St. John Ross was an English vicar. He was described as charming, witty, and intelligent. In August 1955, Philip went on vacation to Wales with his wife Eileen and his two daughters. On August 12th, he went for his daily morning swim at sea. Only this day, 
he did not come back. Look, another drowning. Yeah. When he did not return for tea, his wife walked to the area he was swimming to look for him. But the only thing she found left behind on the beach were his clothes. She looked in the ocean, and when she could not see him anywhere in the water, she went for help. A massive search followed, led by Inspector Cledwin Shaw of Poeli, that included the Coast Guard, local people, farmers, and even an entire Boy Scout troop that was in the area. After three days of intense looking, the search was called off. His wife returned to England and mourned him. The church and its parishioners came together to raise money to build an entire house for Eileen and her two, two girls. They felt so bad. And Philip was declared dead. A year later, an anonymous letter was sent to Scotland Yard saying Philip was actually alive and living with Kathleen Ryle, a widow from his parish. Reporters found out and began to investigate. When they contacted his widow, Eileen, she denied it, saying it absolutely could not be true. He would never do that. His 23-year-old daughter, Wendy, however, had a different opinion. She told reporters it was definitely true and that her dad had actually phoned her mom the day he supposedly drowned. Oh, dear God. Turns out, Philip and Kathleen had been childhood friends. After her husband's death three years previous to his drowning, Philip had fallen in love with Kathleen counseling her, and he decided he didn't want to lose her. So, he faked his death. At first, Philip and Kathleen had lived in London, and then they moved out to the countryside, living under the name Mr. and Mrs. Davies. Reporters actually tracked them down on vacation in Switzerland when this came out. Kathleen returned to London in tears, but Philip wasn't so eager to go back. He stayed in Europe. Both wives professed to still love him. The church and the legal system, not so much. <laughs> he was defrocked by the church and given a 50-pound fine from the courts for what was called a passport offense. I'm assuming that's a passport under a assumed name. Unfortunately, even with much searching, I could not, and I looked everywhere. I found a ton of pictures, but I could not find out how the story ended. Did he go back to the first wife? Did he stay with the second? Did they both get a brain and throw him into the alley like the bag of trash that he was? <laughs> I could not find out. So I have no idea what happened to him. Wow. <laughs> Good story. Good job. All right. I bring you another Englishman. Are we sensing a theme here, ladies? What is it about Englishmen? Well, Alfred. you guys had Englishmen because I think I have people in the United States. Alfred... Rouse. He was a married man with a young child. He now he kind of had a tumultuous job history, but in the 1920s he had secured himself a job as what we would call a commercial trucker. Okay. Okay. Now Alfred wasn't exactly a faithful husband. In fact, as a traveling trucker, he had multiple affairs with females. Now you notice I said females. And I said that because at least one of them was only 14 years old when he started sleeping with her. That's not an affair. By the time this girl was 15, she was pregnant with his child. She was far from the only one, though. Alfred had multiple children with multiple women. And they began to go to court and obtain support orders against him. Good for them. Turns out that he also married at least three of them. Oh, dear, it's us. 
But remember, he was already married. Yep. Okay. The original wife seemed to know nothing of her husband's actions. There were multiple other women who were expecting him to marry them as well. Most of them were pregnant. Now, late on November 5th or early of November 6th of 1930, a car was found burning alongside a road. A man's burned body was found in the car, and the car was traced to the owner, Alfred Rouse. Oh, man, that's such a sad thing. His wife was asked to identify the clothing scraps that they were able to retrieve from the car and the wallet that they had retrieved from the body. Now, she was able to confirm without a doubt that the wallet was her husband's, and she thought that the clothing seemed like it could have been his. She couldn't remember exactly what he was wearing, but she thought the clothing scrap looked like clothing that he owned. Now, the next day, the police received a call from a woman, one of Alfred's Mm -hmm. mistresses. She had seen the articles about the fire in the newspaper, and she had confronted Alfred when he turned up at her house. Oops. He said, oh, it's all a mistake. It was an accident. Don't worry, I'm going to get it taken care of. And he left. But when he left, he told her where he was headed. So she called the police. She told them the story, and then she gave them Alfred's intended destination. And, of course, the police picked Alfred up for questioning. Alfred, of course, claimed that it was all an accident. He told the police that he had picked up a hitchhiker alongside the road, and that when he had pulled his car over so he could get out and pee, that the hitchhiker had somehow accidentally lit the car on fire with himself inside. (laughs) And Alfred had run away in a panic. I have to remember that excuse. (laughs) Now, throughout various interviews, his story consistently changed. At one point, he claimed that he ran away after the, you know, instead of pulling the guy out of the car because, you know, he he was suspicious that the guy wanted to rob him. At one point, he claimed that the guy was drinking. And, like, there's just, like, these all kinds of stories that this guy came up with. He was uh, confronted with evidence that the man in the car had actually been knocked unconscious prior to the fire. They had found a mallet not far from the car, and the clothing scraps had been doused in some sort of flammable liquid. So he was sent to trial. The trial lasted six days, and after 25 minutes of deliberation, the jury found Alfred guilty of arson and murder. That didn't take long. Turns out that Alfred had been planning this for at least a few months. Because a few months prior to his non-death, He had actually purchased a 1,000-pound insurance policy to be paid in the event of the accidental death of the driver of his car. And the beneficiary was his wife. Sadly, to this day, even with DNA testing, the identity of the man who died in his car has never been discovered. William Goodwin Geddes Jr. was born in 1856 in North Brisbane. William had a brother... Henry Raymond, a mother, Alice, and his father, William Goodwin Geddes Sr. Both children received an excellent education, and Junior was known for being an above-average student. He excelled in swimming, and upon graduation, he decided he wanted to become a property surveyor. As a surveyor, his career took him all over Queensland. Oh, so we're talking like Australia. Yeah. Okay. In the summer of 1877, he fell from a horse 
and he had been injured. Okay. So he was recuperating at a beach house that his father had bought, and his brother Henry was there with him, just kind of keeping an eye on stuff, in case he needed anything that he couldn't do for himself. On October 29th of 1877, in some reports, it's kind of half and half, say November 29th, William and Henry went for a swim in King John's Creek. Oh, here we go. Something they frequently did. Look, water again. During the swim, Henry heard William call out for help, but before he could get there, William disappeared. Henry made countless dives looking for William, dive after dive after dive, but he never did find him. The family, locals, the police, they all helped in the search, but nobody ever did find him. Now, William Geds Jr. had made out a will, and he had taken out two life insurance policies to the value of 2,500 pounds, and in 1877, that's about 273,000 pounds today. Okay. And they were to be paid to his mother, which, for a young person, that just sounds suspicious to me, to have not only a will, but two life insurance policies. The insurer was the Australian Mutual Provident Society, and the company actually had some misgivings about paying it out when nobody had been found. But the Getz family were pretty, I mean, they were super respectful people. So the claim was successful. They put a claim against it, and four months after the drowning, the claims were paid out. In 1883, a man named Lewis Brennan, who worked for the survey department in Western Australia, went on 10 days leave, and he didn't return. Oh, on March 14th of 1884, Lewis Brennan was found loitering near the bank of New South Wales with a loaded revolver in his pocket and a mask on his face. He was arrested before he could do anything foolish. I'm really confused as to where this story's going. <laughs> At his court hearing, Brennan's lawyer told of a tale of a talented young surveyor who had recommendations from prominent surveyors in Wales and South Australia and New Zealand. A surveyor who had suffered a sunstroke that affected his mental and physical health so badly he was unable to work or pay his own bills. Sunstroke? Yes, sunstroke. That's what his lawyer said. Must be true. He had had been drinking heavily. He'd been hiding in the bushes. And in desperation, he had taken a revolver from the survey office that he still worked for. And as he called it, in a low, nervous, and depressed state of mind, he found himself in the vicinity of the bank... With his white trousers, a borrowed gun, and a mask. But he didn't commit any robbery, so would putting him in prison be the best solution? That's what his lawyer wanted to know. Well, the magistrate thought so, so they gave him six months, and at that point in time, Brennan just fainted dead away. After serving his sentence, Louis Vincent Brennan met and married a young lady named Alice Maud Rewell, and they had two children, William and Edith. They moved to South Australia, where... Lewis was a loving husband and a really amazing father until an attack of insanity caused him to be committed to the lunatic asylum as a pauper lunatic. Now, Alice Brennan, she um, goes to the asylum and she says, without my husband and any income, I'm destitute. I am destitute. But I think that he might have had some relatives in Brisbane who might have had some money and they could possibly help me. So people began to put the pieces together, and somebody decided that maybe Mr. Brennan might be Mr. Geds. Oh. So Sergeant Atkinson, who had led the search for William Geds, he was sent 
to the lunatic asylum to meet Mr. Brennan. He recognized Mr. Brennan, and Mr. Brennan recognized him. The insurance company filed a suit against Ged's fathers because they believed he had been complicit in the scam. William Sr. promptly returned the money, plus an additional 2,400 pounds, so almost double what he got. Right. Shortly after the return of William Jr., Henry Raymond, his brother, was admitted to a mental institution for an unspecified amount of time, and I couldn't find why. William Sr. died in 1905, and Alice, his mother, lived to be 91. William Goodwin Geddes Jr. died on October 22nd of 1894 at the age of only 38. His death was not made public, and I could not find a cause of death as to why he died so young. It does sound like he had some serious mental issues. Uh, That's my thought, too. That was really my thought, is he has some serious mental issues. Wow. And the fact that it seems like, I don't know, just the family going in on it, like, I don't know. And then he lives destitute. But I don't know that the family was in on it. I didn't find anything that suggested the family knew anything about it. Didn't you say that dad was found guilty of fraud? No. No. Oh, I'm The insurance company filed a suit because they believed he was involved in the scam. Right, right, right. But it never went to court because he paid it plus some additional funds. Gotcha, gotcha. But I never in any of the articles found anything that said the family had any inkling that he had done this the way he did. Hmm. Not to say that they didn't know. I'm saying I couldn't find anything that suggested that they knew. Can you imagine, though? We're all parents. Can you imagine actually mourning your child? And then finding out some years later, they're still alive. He would die for real. I don't know how you get past that. Yeah, that's gotta be so rough because you're happy he's alive, but then you're like, you've got, like, the drama behind that is, like, unbelievable. Yeah. He has mental illness, clearly, to me. Yeah. So I'm I'm thinking that maybe the parents kind of were like, you know. Well, Mary and I are getting ready to start our second cider here. This one is called Blood Amulet. It is by Bee Nectar, which is, of course, one of our favorites. They are another Michigan company. If you listen to Hannah, we have a lot of favorites. We we do have a lot of, of ones that we really do enjoy their, their product. Um, this is a hard cider with raspberry and cranberry in it. Yummy. Yep. Oh, this is going to be good. Yes. Yes, yes. All right. All right. All right, <clears throat> Lynn. You're, You're up. up. All right, I'm waiting for a taste. Oh, sorry. Oh, okay. You know, you know I want to know. It looks interesting. It smells beautiful. It's got a really beautiful rosé color. Yeah, the name is a little off-putting, I will say. So like, Bee Nectar always name? has really weird names, really interesting names for their for their stuff. It is delicious. It is. Because one All of right. my favorite products by them is called Death Unicorn. All right, Death Unicorn. It's very nice. Very, very nice. But I think we like most of their stuff. We do. All right. It is quite lovely. Very crisp. I think so, yeah. All right. All right, hit it, Lynn. All right. Let's move on. Richard John Bingham. Richard was the seventh Earl of Lucan, known for a time as Lord Lucky, until he wasn't. (laughs) According to the New York Times, he was 
a dashing British aristocrat and army officer known for his prowess at backgammon and bridge and his fondness for vodka martinis, powerboats, and Aston Martin cars. All at the same time. Probably. Probably. <laughs> it just reminds me of a guy who's watched too many James Bond. I was just thinking that. Yeah, so I, I've got my visual of him. I saw pictures. He was he was the look of that, you know, smarmy, aristocratic, decent-looking guy who thought he was all that. All right. So he was a banker before he became a professional gambler and then a murdering coward. I do have murder. Johanna was right. There is some murder. I forgot about this. Okay. Richard was married to Veronica Duncan in 1963. But in 1972, the marital bliss was gone, and he had moved out. In 1974, Veronica filed for divorce, saying that he had beaten her with a cane, and she won custody of their children after a bitter custody battle. By all accounts, Richard was angry, controlling, and he was obsessed with regaining custody of his children. He was also $60,000 in debt. Apparently, his gambling was not that good. Might have to get to a lower brand of martini liquid. Yeah, smaller boats and cars and maybe slower cars. Yeah, might have to stick yeah, with little, a Honda. The little, the little Hot Wheels. Yeah. On November seventh, nineteen seventy-four, twenty-nine-year-old Sandra Rivet. She was the children's nanny. She went into the basement of Veronica's house to get something. She didn't come back upstairs. Veronica eventually went to the basement to look for Sandra. While in the basement, she was attacked by Richard. She told the police he hit her over the head with a lead pipe, tried to strangle her, and that she escaped by grabbing his balls and squeezing. (laughs) Very, very hard. I wonder how many of our listeners are holding themselves. (laughs) Later that evening, Richard showed up at his friend Susan Maxwell Scott's house. She had no idea what had happened, and he told her some story about his ex-wife lying and trying to set him up for murder. She didn't call the police, and he left. He was never seen again. On November 10th, three days later, the car he was driving was found in New Haven, West Sussex, with an empty bottle of prescription pills. This made it seem like he had tried to kill himself. There was, however, a bloody piece of lead pipe in the trunk that matched what was used on Sandra and Veronica. Said not super smart. No, no. Uh, Police began an intense manhunt, but Richard was never found. His friends actually refused to cooperate and impeded the investigation. In 1975, an inquest determined that he was guilty of murdering Sandra Rivet, the nanny. Rumors have said that the wealthy friends the ones who impeded the investigation actually helped him escape. Veronica stated that she believes he killed himself by throwing himself off a ferry. Nope. There have been over 70 sightings of him since they found his car. No, I don't think a man like that is going to kill himself by throwing himself off of a ferry. Yeah. I don't <clears throat> He's a coward. So yeah, oh. no, I don't think so. And he had rich friends who, yeah. you know, probably helped. In 2020, Neil Berryman... Sandra Rivet's son believed he had found Richard, who would by then be 85-year-olds living in Australia as a Buddhist in a colony. He took his claim to Scotland Yard. 
After a 15-month investigation, they determined the man was not Richard. However, Neil believes they did not do a thorough investigation and that due to COVID and other things and the lack of DNA, he believes it still <clears throat> is Richard. I can understand that. Wow. That one almost had closure. Wow. Almost. This one's short. Okay. Kim Casey. Recognize the name? Nope. Lynn, you recognize the name? Ken Casey? Yep. No? Okay. Ken Casey is the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh my god. <laughs> Casey, yes. Ken, is it Kesey? I believe it's Kesey. Kesey. Okay. okay. So, in... 1965, Ken was arrested for possession of marijuana in La Hondra, California. He didn't really want to go to jail for this, so he decided that he could escape conviction by faking his own death. Now, he had a group of friends that he was known to hang out with. They, they were well known. They called themselves the Merry Pranksters. They were known for, they did a cross-country uh road trip that they filmed and it was fueled with LSD. <laughs> I wish you could see Mary's face right now. They were known for throwing parties that were fueled with acid. So so Ken's friends decided to help him out. They parked his truck alongside a road near a cliff near a cliff in or near Eureka, California. And they left a very elaborate written suicide note which had been written by the gang of friends ken himself had fled to mexico in the back of a friend's car okay so ken's not even here <coughs> nope for this for this nope. death thing nope. oh, jesus nope. ken's out of here wait wait how does this fit okay he's not faking his own death his friends are doing it so it's not i faked my own death my friends faked my death <laughs> at his request <laughs> jesus so, I guess it's better that they faked his death than his friends actually killed him. Right? Made it look really real. So after eight months in Mexico, for some reason that I couldn't find an explanation for, Ken decided to return to the U.S. On January 17th of 1966, he was sentenced to six months in jail. And two days later, he was arrested for while he was smoking marijuana again. Jesus. <laughs> He did actually go on to live a really decent life. Um, he, it was crazy the entire time. Him and the pranksters stayed together for all the way up until like the 2000s. And, and yeah, he never really settled his life down. But yeah. Wow. The guy who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with the help of his friends faked his own death. That was pretty good. When he did that, did you did you give us an age when he did this? I was wondering, was it before or after he wrote the it book? It was after he wrote the book. Wow. But he did really? write a second. Maybe he was like 19, 18, you know, kind of just a young. Oh, no. he No. Oh, no. He was older than that. Wow. Um, so the, actually there is footage of the trip. The cross-country LSD road trip. We don't need to see that. It was made into, like, some sort of movie documentary that was released just a few years ago. So he was 30 when he faked his own death. Yeah. Because he was born in 1935. And he died in 2001. Yeah. Yeah. So, but all the way up until the 90s and even, like, right before he died, he was still performing and writing and He was also married when he faked his own death. (laughs) 
whole thing is crazy. That is freaking crazy. Because he wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 62. Yep. After he... Um, and he wrote other things, I too. I was going to say, after he wrote after he wrote that and then faked his own death, he actually continued to write. Yeah, he wrote he, a couple books before and a couple books after. Wow. That's insane. Yep. 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 There are a lot of books involved in our stories, I've also noticed. Well, you can't get much better than the pickle book, really. Yeah. So, yeah. Famous author. There you go. All right. I don't think it's quite as famous as One Flew Over a Cuckoo's Nest. No, mine was not quite as famous, but his was more unique. His book was much more unique. And probably cheaper. I I was just going to say, you can get it for a lot less than it costs you to buy One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. But I bet you can get One Flew Over a Cuckoo's Nest at a library. Yeah. And I'm not sure the pickle book is in most libraries. I don't know. Probably not. I tried not to jump into too many rabbit holes. All right. Marion Franklin Rogers was born in 1896 to Benjamin Franklin Rogers and Hannah Rogers. And in 1926, he married his wife. And they either had three or four children, depending on what you read. Some reports said three, some reports said four, some reports said both. Um, Marion was drafted into the Army, but after about a week of being on duty, he was admitted into the Arkansas State Hospital, having been diagnosed as being mentally ill. So in 1927, Marion Franklin Rogers escaped from the asylum slash hospital. And apparently after he left the hospital, he simply abandoned his wife and three or four children, and he started a new life as a drifter. In January of 1929, Connie Franklin moved to the town of St. James in Stone County, Arkansas. He was 22 years old, and he found work cutting timber and doing manual labor on a farm. As time went by, he met, and he began to court, 16-year-old Tiller Ruminer. But alas, love was not to stay in the air for long for the tragedy-bound couple. On March 9th of 1929, just two months short of meeting and falling in love, Connie was brutally murdered. And on that evening, according to Tiller, who was too afraid to even tell the story for several months, Night bandits had set upon them as they were walking together holding hands and anticipating the following day on which they were to be married. They knew the four men, Hubert Hester, Herman Greenway, Joe White, and Bill Younger. Those were the four men that set upon them. And as she continued with her story, Sheriff Sam Johnson heard how Hester and Greenway took her into the woods and raped her while the other two men tortured and mutilated her fiancé and then burned him alive. She hadn't come forward earlier because one of the attackers threatened to kill her, whip her father and mother, and carry her brother away as a hostage. In the fall of 1929, Bertha Burns had found a bloody hat that supposedly belonged to Franklin back in the spring, and she contacted Sheriff Johnson. She brought him to a pit of ashes that was not far from her home, said she found the hat there. And she said, maybe there's some evidence of Franklin's murder in the pit. Sheriff Johnson found some bone fragments and he found some teeth. And he took them to the Arkansas State Health Officer, who was named Dr. C.W. Garrison. And the doctor determined that at least one of the shards came from a human skull. On November 18th of 1929, the grand jury issued indictments for first-degree murder for Alex Folks, 
who they say was the alleged ringleader of this gang of murderers, Joe White, Herman Greenway, Hubert Hester, and Bill Younger. And a trial date was set for December 17th with the defense attorney and the prosecutors being related. They were, in fact, brothers. The trial got underway. Tiller spent two hours on the stand recounting the horrors of that night that she'd gone through. The rape, the torture, the mutilation, the burning of the body. However, she did admit under questioning by the defense attorney that she had not actually seen Connie tortured or burned. She said that the defendants had told her those details. Reuben Harrell testified, and with the help of an interpreter, because Reuben was deaf, he told the jury how he had seen Herman Greenway carrying the limp, presumably dead body of Connie Franklin through the woods on the night of March 9th. The state health officer got on the stand, and he testified about the bones that they had taken from the pile of ashes. However, the shard from the skull was no longer there. It had been lost, and he felt that the rest of the bones came from either a sheep or maybe a dog. The next witness that was called was none other than Marion Franklin Rogers. Now, medical and dental records state that Marion Franklin Rogers and Connie Franklin were the very same man. Fingerprints and handwriting samples said that the two men were one and the same. But Tiller said that Marion was absolutely not her fiancé, Connie, and other town residents and friends of the couple agreed with her. They were, these were two different men. Tiller's father, her cousin, and a neighbor all stated that no, this man was definitely not Connie Franklin. The defendants and their family and friends all disagreed. Connie and Marion were one and the same. Now, when Marion Rogers took the stand, he swore under oath that he had lived for several months under the name of Connie Franklin. He said he had courted Tiller and he planned to marry her under the name of Connie, but on the eve of their wedding, he had been drinking rather heavily with the defendants, and on his way home, he'd actually fallen off of his mule. He said he had not even seen Tiller that day. Now, the following day, according to his testimony, Tiller wanted to postpone the wedding until the fall season, and Marion said no. If she wasn't going to marry him that day, they weren't going to marry at all. He said she told him no, she, she wouldn't marry him that day. So he left town, and he went to Humphrey, Arkansas, and he didn't return until he heard that some others were on trial for his murder. He and the defense claimed that enemies of the defendants had framed them for the murder in order to settle an old eight-year-old feud. Now, ultimately, the men on trial went free. And in December of 1932, three years after the trial, Marion Rogers was found lying beside a road outside Clarendon. He died of exposure three days later. Medical reports show that he did have appendicitis. And whether the real Franklin was murdered or Rogers merely faked his disappearance has yet to be positively established. Because it's not every day you get to testify at the trial for your own murder. Okay, so I have one. Um, my next one is Juan Pujol Garcia. In 1941, German was taking over Spain, and the British embassy there was under attack. Juan Pujol Garcia wanted to do something. He did not like the Germans, he was Spanish, and he decided he wanted to be a spy. For Britain and help with the effort to defeat Hitler and his army. So when this young Spaniard approached the British intelligence, they told him he had no experience, no connections to help them, nothing he could do. He actually tried twice more and both times they said thanks, but no thanks. 
Juan was not about to let those naysayers defeat him. If they didn't want his help, then he would do it without them. He posed as a Spanish official and approached the Nazi officials. Juan told the Nazis he wanted to spy for them, and he began to prove it by passing them information, false information, false information that he made up doing his own research. <clears throat> he used magazines and reference books to find information, and then he wrote up what looked like official reports. He invented over dozens of fictional people in these reports. Somehow, it worked, and they believed him. They didn't see through him, even when he made obvious blunders that were later noticed. In 1942, he met with M-16 and offered to be a double agent. After seeing what he was doing with the Nazis, they actually accepted this time, and the British double agent Garbo was born. During this time, with M-16, he wrote over 315 official letters to give to the Nazis, each one with an average of 2,000 words. And again, with all of these fake people he made up and kept track of. His most famous oh exploit God. was to convince the Germans that what they heard about D-Day invasion was not true. On June 9th, Hitler and the Nazi command had heard rumors of a Normandy invasion. They were unsure about the truthfulness, and if so, what they should do. They needed to know, should they bring troops into the area or send them to a different spot. He sent a very long and detailed telegram explaining why it was not true and what the actual plan was elsewhere. After reading the telegram, Hitler decided there would be no invasion in Normandy and didn't send the troops there. He sent them elsewhere. As a result of Juan's deception, the Germans were unprepared, which allowed D-Day to be the success it was. He went on with them to actually convince them after that that it was their fault and that uh, he would have nothing to do with them if they were so inept. They ended up giving him a huge award, which he said he did not deserve. They never realized who he really was. After World War II ended, Juan decided his life was in danger and he faked his own death with the help of M-16 to avoid retaliation by the Nazis. They announced that Agent Juan Garcia had died of malaria in 1948. His wife and children who lived in Spain were notified of his death. They were not let in on the truth. Wow. Juan moved to Venezuela where he grew a beard, wore heavy glasses, and took on the name Juan Garcia. He began a new life, running a bookstore, and marrying a woman named Carmen Celia. They went on to have three children together. In 1984, a journalist named Nigel West uncovered the truth after digging around for over 10 years and tracked him down. <clears throat> Juan went back to London where he was received at the palace and recognized as the hero that he is. Nigel and Juan went on to co-write a book about his exploits called Operation Garbo. It is $6.95 on eBay. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you're giving our readers things to read or our listeners things to read. Yeah. They can go oh. and read the books now. Yeah, lots of reading material going on here. Yep. All right. Okay. I have one last one here for you, ladies. Okay. We're going to talk about Jerry Balasak. 
Now, Jerry Balesack was a pro wrestler from the 1970s. He was known as Mr. X. Ooh, mysterious. Sadly, after a motorcycle accident required surgery, his life took a bit of a bad turn. He ended up under investigation for check forgery. And in 1977, he was indicted on 13 counts for writing bad checks across international lines. He was accused of buying motorcycle parts in the Caribbean with bad checks. Now, because of the dollar amount of the checks, he was looking at 10 years in federal prison on each count. It's 130 years. Oh. So, Jerry and his girlfriend came up with a plan. They they would run. They fled with her young son. They broke into the home of Ricky Allen Weta, which was the girlfriend's second cousin. And while they were in the home, Jerry stole Ricky's birth certificate, social security card, and driver's license. He assumed Ricky's identity, and he married his girlfriend. Oh, my. The, The couple and the young boy fled to Miami, and from there they went to Puerto Rico. Now, while they were in Puerto Rico, Jerry was actually hired by King Wrestling as a performer. They soon relocated to the Bahamas where Jerry performed in the National Wrestling Alliance. Soon, however, he was informed that his visa was going to expire and the government did not intend to renew it. So, what's a guy to do? Well, you move again. So this time they moved to Seattle, Washington. That was the same year that the FBI actually obtained an arrest warrant for Jerry after he failed to appear for his bad check writing trial. So now, he's wanted by the FBI. Next, Jerry falsified college transcripts, saying that he had actually graduated from the University of Cambridge in England, and using those transcripts, he obtained a job with Boeing. Oh my. That's a big difference from wrestling. <laughs> you think? <laughs> Apparently, he's really smart. Like, they tested him, and he tested well, and right. appeared to know what he was doing, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's kind of crazy. That didn't last, though. Because in 1979, he was fired after Boeing discovered his lie. The FBI tracked Jerry from Alabama to Florida and then to the Bahamas. And then they lost the trail and they couldn't find him. They had no leads on his location. Now, in December of 1978, Life magazine ran a big story on the Jonestown murders. Yeah. And Jerry's mom contacted the FBI. She told the FBI that three of the bodies depicted in the cover on the magazine were actually Jerry, his wife, and the wife's son. But the FBI didn't believe her. So she actually asked to be allowed to identify the bodies in person. She was told, however, that by the time authorities got to the bodies, they were quite decomposed. And so after they had been brought back to the U.S., they were buried and they were not available for identification. Hmm. Okay. Now, Jerry's mom bought Jerry a headstone and it had a um, a not so kind uh, sentiment towards the State Department, something along the lines of screw the State Department. Why would you put that on a headstone? And she had it placed in an Alabama cemetery. In 1983, spring of 1983, Jerry's mom actually died. And later that year, the FBI canceled the hunt for Jerry. 
The following year, in 1984, the Alabama State Attorney General's Office dropped the check forgery charges because they hadn't had any luck finding Jerry. The prosecutor assumed that Jerry was, in fact, dead. Jerry, however, didn't know that he was no longer a wanted fugitive, so he continued to live under his stolen identity of okay. Ricky. Now, in 1988, Jerry was arrested on charges of arson and insurance fraud. And somehow, during the booking process, his fingerprints still didn't alert the authorities to his true identity. Oh, my goodness. Right? Now, in 1989, Jerry was actually arrested again, this time for attempted murder. He was arrested for the attempted murder of a guy named Emmett Thompson, who was, I don't know, like the nephew of his wife. Emmett testified that... Jerry had hired him to set fire to this business that Jerry wanted to collect the insurance on. Okay. Jerry owned a business. And that when, after he did that, that Jerry had attempted to kill him so that, to cover his track. Oh, jeez. You know? So it'd be like, I hire you to burn down my business, and now I'm going to kill you, so you can't rat me out that you burned down my business right. so I can collect insurance. Right. Yeah. So Jerry ends up actually being convicted of the attempted murder. He spends 13 and a half years in prison, and after he gets out of prison, he changes his name legally to Harrison Rains Hanover. And in 2009, he's implicated in a scheme to defraud the first Security Bank of Washington while he was working for the Edward Jones Investment Company. <laughs> Lynn's holding oh, your head. I, so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Because that was my question. In 2009, really in the 2000s, you know they have the ability to run background checks. I don't care if you've changed your name. How does this not come up? <laughs> Despite the fact that he was implicated in the scheme, he was actually never charged. And he then quickly <laughs> moved his self to Nicaragua. What did he do in Nicaragua? <laughs> in Nicaragua, in 2012, he was arrested for sex offenses. Oh, Jesus! He was... Is there anything this man didn't do? Just... Currently, financial crimes weren't working for him, so he went to something else. He, uh, he was actually convicted. He was sentenced to 24 years in prison in Nicaragua. I think he should have stayed in the U.S. Thank you very much. Yeah. And in 2013, just less than a year after he was convicted and sent to prison, he actually died of a heart attack. All right. All right. The end. My next one, I thought when Lynn did her story on the, Lord, the Earl of Lucan, I thought that mm -hmm. sounded a little familiar. It is, because my story ties in with your story. Oh. Which is incredibly bizarre. John Stonehouse. Tall, good looking. Hold on, wait, I have a question. Yeah. Did you check Jeannie.com? Jeannie I'm afraid of Jeannie.com, <laughs> okay. I'm afraid. Really afraid. John Stonehouse. Tall, good looking. Fiercely ambitious. Clever. Motivated, energetic, charming. He seems to have it all. Beautiful wife, adorable daughter, rising through the ranks. He is well-liked, he's respected, he's admired, and on top of that, the family is financially stable. Whatever could go wrong. 
Hmm. Well, companies he owned were going under. He's passing secret information to the enemy country. He's embezzling money from the government that he works for. A five-year affair with a woman barely older than his daughter. An allegation of physical abuse with his wife. Um, whatever could go wronger. On the November 20th of 1974, while booked at a hotel in Miami, John Stonehouse told a business colleague he was going to go for what? What? What is? A swim! He's going, swim. he's going for a swim. Ding, ding, ding! In the ocean. Oh my gosh! It's like she was there! <laughs> After stopping by... I have to tell you something. Don't tell her I told you this. Okay. She's John Stonehouse. <laughs> oh, oh! No, she's not tall. She's got everything now else, I'm but she's... I'm going to have to kill you! <laughs> All right. So after step, stopping by the beach cabana to deposit his regular clothes with the attendant, he goes into the sea, and he doesn't come back. When it's noticed that he hadn't come back to collect his belongings, it appears that he had vanished from the face of the earth. When the news reached him, his distraught wife Barbara and his horrified family knowing him to be a strong swimmer, thought maybe he had a heart attack. Maybe he was attacked by a shark. Some people in Westminster conjectured that he had been the victim of a mafia hit, while others speculated that he'd just been smuggled to communist Cuba on a Russian submarine. Oh, that seems plausible. Yeah, we were all over the map. <laughs> John had decided to create an alternative identity with the name A.J. Markham. He acquired a passport under his assumed name. He opened foreign bank accounts to channel hidden funds. And he finally staged his disappearance while on a trip to Florida. He got the idea from a novel, The Day of the Jackal. On a beach in Miami, he took off his clothes. He placed them in a pile and he walked away. He faked his death by leaving the sea along the coast and he changed into dry clothes that he had secretly deposited there. And he made his way to Australia using one of two false identities that he had stolen from dead husbands of some of his constituents. Now, it appeared that he had tragically drowned in the Atlantic. Barbara, his wife, as well as his political allies, agreed, initially believed that he was truly gone. But American and British police weren't really so quick to agree. Because suspicion had already begun swirling around him like a tornado on a hot summer day in Kansas. If it weren't for one tiny little piece of extremely bad luck, Lynn, John could have melted right into his new identity and never had another care in the world. On November 7th, the wealthy Richard John Bingham, the Earl of Lucan, disappeared after being suspected in the attack in which his wife was beaten and the nanny was murdered. When John Stonehouse visited a bank in Australia, a teller became suspicious when he made a sizable deposit because the teller believed that this was the Lord of Lucan. <laughs> the police put him under surveillance only to discover that he was actually the missing John Stonehouse. Stonehouse was deported back to Britain where he was sentenced to seven years in, in prison for theft and fraud. Barbara divorced him and after being released from prison after three years, he married Sheila. He had a son with her. Now Sheila is the woman he had the five-year affair with. He wrote some novels. He appeared on various TV shows. A heart attack, one that of several that began during his time in prison, took his life at the age of 62. Julia Stonehouse is his daughter, and she firmly believes in his innocence. She believes that n this, none of this was true. She is fearlessly defensive of him. 
She claims he did not receive any money from the enemy country that he supposedly gave secrets to. She believes his conspiratorial relationships were cooked up by his enemies because there's no evidence that he gave any secrets away. She argues that her father was the victim of vicious and inaccurate newspapers, disloyal colleagues, and right-wingers seeking to discredit the government. And, and rogue elements in the British Secret Services. And she claims he was actually killed by human cruelty. And she expresses a wish that he had gotten away with his disappearance. Lord Lucan, however, was never seen again. And he was legally declared dead in October of 1999. And a death certificate was issued in 2016. Now, Richard John Bingham, also known as Lord Lucan, was, is still listed on the Doe Network the International Center for Missing and Unidentified Persons. Wow. So I'm tired. That's nice. I know. Isn't that awesome? That is yeah. pretty damn funny. That's funny. funny. What that a coinkadink. All right. Yeah. I should check Jeannie and see if we're related to them. <laughs> you might want to run all these names oh, while you're at it. All right. Well, I have another one. Okay. I have John Darwin. Okay. On March 21st, 2002, John Darwin a prison officer, went for a kayak ride on the North Sea and did not return. Oh, my God. Did he drown? You know, we'll <laughs> have to listen and find out because, you know, those seas. Although on that day, I got to say that they did note that the, the North Sea was completely placid with no wind, so it was a little surprising that he could have mm. had problems because he was a strong swimmer. But you don't know what's going on underneath that. That's right. It could be tidal waves under there. There could be undertow. Rip currents. Rip currents. So, but when he didn't show up for work later that evening, he was reported missing, and a very large search was led, but to no avail. A day later, though, his wrecked kayak was found on the shore. Oh, okay. Leading them to believe he was dead, um, which they did pronounce his death in 2003, issue a death certificate. His distraught wife, Anne, sadly claimed the 250,000-pound life insurance Oh, policy. there was nothing sad about that. Please. She was dead. He was dead. It was the love of her life. Come Please. on. Please. Yes. I'm sorry. Money makes up for a lot of things. Not your true love. No. Five and a half years later, December 1st, 2007, John Darwin miraculously walked into the London police station, claiming to have amnesia. His wife, who had moved to Panama in that time, was elated. Imagine her surprise at seeing her wonderful husband, the love of her life, alive. Hold on, I have a question. Did he have a really nice tan when he walked into the police station? You know, I did not. Uh, I did not research the color of his skin, or the tone of his skin, <laughs> the depth of the brownness that. The depth of the brownness. The brownness of his skin. The depth of the brownness. <laughs> okay. All right. We have an an amnesiac victim and an elated wife. All right. So she's elated. She comes back from Panama. My love, I didn't move on without you. Yay, we're back together. All right, the police had their doubts, though. They had noticed some things earlier that made them suspect John may not be dead. Came the bombshell. The newspaper published a photo of John and Anne in Panama from 2006, the year before, years after he had <clears throat> drowned. And Anne was his wife, correct? 
The one who was elated that he was gone and devastated when he was dead. Yep. yep. The one who didn't move on without him. That's why she didn't move on. I wondered. I wondered why she didn't move on. I was like, okay, where's the husband in the background? <laughs> yeah, police discovered that John was actually living next door to his wife that whole first year. He was supposedly dead. Holy and shit! Then, and then, after email upon email, they discovered him begging her to let him move back into their house because he was lonely next door. She let him move back in. He assumed a new name and got a fake passport under the name John Jones. That's so original. Of a dead, well, they did use the name of a dead boy from years before. It turned out, though, that John and Anne had had a property with 12 homes on it that they were going to start a B&B with. Unfortunately, they were struggling to make payments, so they schemed to fake his death and get the money for an insurance policy. Remember when you commit a crime, the police can search your emails. So if all of this is on your emails, the police will find it. Mm. And then they'll be like, yeah, here you go. Uh, They were planning on moving together to Panama. They had even purchased a tropical estate. John had gone down there, but there was a new visa policy that forced their hand in Panama. They can't make the payments on their B&B property, but they can buy a new estate somewhere else mm-hmm. right because they got the insurance policy they okay sold okay okay so okay okay and then with that huge insurance policy okay that's when they, they bought the estate okay in panama all right so not the cleverest people anyhow so all right the problem was panama now had a law that said visas will need to be verified by the police from whatever country you come from john decided that that was not going to work, that they would be discovered. So he decided to return and uh, just say it amnesia. They'll, it'll be okay. So their two sons were initially overjoyed at their father's return. But upon learning the truth, they actually cut off ties to both parents. They had no clue that their mom and dad were doing this. Good for them. Yep. Got John it. pled guilty to eight charges of fraud that totaled nearly $250,000, and he was let off on several other charges. He was sentenced to six years and three months in prison. Anne, however, pled not guilty to all 15 charges she was tried with. She actually tried to claim that John forced her to do it, that he was abusive. But drat those emails again. They showed that they were much in love, very happy, and completely in on this whole thing together. She was found guilty and sentenced to six and a half years in prison. After serving two years and eight months, she got out. They got divorced. Anne wrote a book called Out of My Depth, available on Amazon in paperback for $13.90, for $9.22. John now lives in the Philippines with his wife, Mercy May who is 48 years old while he is 81 years old. Not judging, not judging, I don't judge, but there's a little age discrepancy there. Sounded a little judgy there. Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. another book for people to read out of my book. Whoa. Everybody who dies, fakes their own death, writes a book. I get it. All right. My last one. 
As a young person, Aubrey Lee Price was well-known as hardworking, coachable, sensitive, with a good head on his shoulders. As an adult, people called him likable, deeply religious, open, and friendly. He was smart, a solid husband, father, one of the most giving of men. So what changed? Beginning in 1987, Lee Price, they called him Lee, they didn't call him Aubrey, they called him Lee, became deeply involved in his church. He worked at a power plant for two years, making enough money to attend nearby Bruton Parker, which is a college, a Baptist college, in Mount Vernon, Georgia, where he met his wife, Rebecca. He graduated in 1990 with a bachelor's in ministry, and during breaks, he worked as a youth pastor. He went on to pursue a master's degree from Columbia before taking his first head minister job in Pelion, South Carolina. That's where his, first, where his two children, Nathan and Hannah, were born. Now, Aubrey Lee Price had always been a demonstrative Christian. In the late 1990s, he'd been a pastor at a small Baptist church, and after that, at Clear Springs Baptist Church, where he tithed, he mentored young congregants, he led mission trips to South America to build churches, to distribute clothes to the poor. Um, <clears throat> so, a Christian thanks God for the blessings that are bestowed upon him, and Lee Price was rich with them. He had four children, a wife, and a position of stature in the non-spiritual world. In 2000, Price moved the family to Alpharetta, and he went to work for the brokerage firm Salomon Smith Barney. In 2003, he left Smith Barney for Bank of America Securities. He'd have more clients, he'd have a better salary. And his investor list soon ballooned to 500. He worked constantly, becoming less involved with his church. He started PFG in January of 2008, a little over a year after obtaining his broker's license, and he eventually had more than 100 clients of his own. And then came the Great Recession. And by December of 2009, 66% of all Georgia banks were unprofitable, and that is according to the FDIC. 25 banks had failed that year, and 21 banks failed the next year. Georgia had more bank closures than any other state. Now, for the past four years previously, Price had run his own multi-million dollar investment firm, PFG. His clients saw a man whose great humility was outweighed only by his uncanny ability to outgas the markets. In 2009, unbeknownst to his clients, Price began gambling with their money. He was making risky investments, and he would later falsify documents to hide those investments. The following year, he convinced 40 of his clients to invest in a troubled Georgia bank, and he raised $10 million from them and another $4 million from bank employees and area residents. And Price then took charge of investing the bank's new $14 million capital. That was, after all, his specialty. But according to the feds, Price had been losing his investors' money. And despite the fund's mission of positive total returns with low volatility, he had been investing his clients' savings in high-risk investments, real estate deals in South America. And to cover his tracks, he was sending his clients account statements that showed fictitious assets and investment returns. In July of 2011, investors began to hear the news. The FDIC, the state auditors, has come in and they had done a review of the bank. The investors find out that the numbers that they've been receiving on a regular basis are nowhere near correct. How bad are they off? They had assumed they had a four or three point four million dollar hole. They discover that they're in at least a fifty million dollar hole. This is how we all end up on the ferry.
Fairies are on water. We're on the water again. Of course we are. The um, the late morning of June 16th, 2012, Price caught a plane. Security cameras show him exiting the Key West Airport terminal. And next he is seen getting into a taxi. And then he changes into a white hat and he visits a post office and a dive shop. Hmm, that's not suspicious. No. Then he boards a ferry that goes from Key West to Fort Myers. Oh, not suspicious. The, the ferry from Key West to Fort Myers takes three and a half hours and it leaves about six in the evening. And on the evening of June 16th, passengers probably didn't pay any attention to the man in the khaki shorts and the white shirt. As the ferry drew closer to the Estero, the man walked outside to the deck. The air was heavy with moisture, the humidity a reminder. The mist was lightly falling, and Lee Price sat quietly, praying what prayers he could put together and wiping tears from his cheeks. He was feeling hopeless. He was feeling depressed, and he knew it was time. It was time to go up to the third deck and jump off the railing and take his life. He left letters behind for all the people in his life. He admitted his failings. He admitted his crimes. And he told them he was going to take care of everything by killing himself. That was the only way. They knew he loved them, but he couldn't bear for them to watch him answer for the horrible things he had done, the lives he had ruined, and the families he had destroyed. And when he disappeared on June 16th of 2012, he left behind a bank whose collapse was imminent. He left behind dozens of investors whose entire life savings were gone. People who had liked and trusted him. People who had believed in him. They thought he believed in him too. People who had they were left with absolutely nothing. These were people who had lost absolutely everything. Because in the end, Price's deception resulted in the bank's failure and losses of more than $70 million. Jesus. The Coast Guard searched for his body, but they didn't find it. Apparently, the tidal waves in Fort Myers are pretty bad. Yep. Last ass monster probably got him. The wife, his wife and children believed he was dead, and they were left destitute and heartbroken. So Rebecca filed papers to have him legally declared dead, and the courts, they did that. On December 31st, Aubrey Lee Price was de- legally declared to be dead, and within a month, life insurance policies were beginning to be paid out. But Price's family received exactly zero dollars because every penny went into a fund to pay investors back. Yeah, that's how that works. But the family didn't know that. They didn't know that he had done all this in the beginning. Oh, okay. So, unbeknownst to the family, Lee Price became one of FBI's most wanted fugitives. He had a $20,000 reward because they didn't believe he was dead. Even though his letters sounded sincere, there was no body, and FBI agents are kind of naturally suspicious. Kind of like us. I was just going to say that. After his exit from the ferry, Price fled to Mexico, but he actually ended up in Citra, Florida, where he remade himself into a man named Jason. Jason was from South Carolina, and Jason had alcohol problems. He performed odd jobs, fence repairs, electrical work, small stuff. And he told the townspeople he had been in jail for cocaine. His family had kicked him out, and he was a recovering drunk. But in truth, Jason grew marijuana. A lot of it. And he made friends with a man he knew as Pedro, a cocaine kingpin, who wanted Jason to work for him, and occasionally Jason served as a bodyguard for Pedro's prostitutes. On December 31st of 2013... Jason was stopped on I-95 for having over-tinted windows 
an expired license plate, and a cracked windshield. The stop led to a search of the car, which led to several false identifications being found, resulting in an arrest for giving a false name and false date of birth. And it was only after that that Jason's real identity came to life. When a federal judge recently sentenced him to 30 years in prison for bank fraud, embezzlement, and other crimes, he closed a chapter on the once successful businessman's sensational criminal saga. And after his death, the life insurance companies filed suit to recover the over $1.8 million that they had paid out upon his death. And who are they going to sue? The victims who were already victimized? I would assume they were going to sue the family because that's who the beneficiaries were. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but the family I don't didn't know. get the money. I know. But I don't, I don't know who they sued. That's interesting. You know what the moral of the story is here, right? Don't be a Baptist church minister. If you're running from the law, don't overtint your windows like your license plate is fire and drive with a cracked windshield. He was actually on his way to get his thing renewed for his plates. I mean, the windshield and the overtinted windows were different, but yeah, he was actually on his way to take care of the expired license plates. But you're supposed to do that before they expire. Or take a car that that isn't. No one to blame but yourself. Or drive a vehicle that doesn't have the expired plates. Or maybe he should have continued to work for Pedro. Steal a license plate next time that doesn't have expired tags on it or something. Are you encouraging criminal activity? No. No, No, I'm not. But if you're going to be a criminal, be a smart criminal. That's what I'm saying. Thank you. Lynn gets it. Stop giving us so much material to work with. (laughs) Jesus. Oh, my God. All right, Lynn, do you have one more? I do. I have one to finish us off. All right. Even Kellaway was a British psychologist. In 2008, he and his wife, Nellie, went on vacation to Russia to get Nellie breast augmentation surgery. I know that's where I think of when I think about boob jobs. I think people do that because they're cheaper, probably. I don't know. um, I thought Canada was cheaper for all of that stuff. I have no idea, but they're in Britain, so I don't know, flight-wise. Okay. Well, while in Russia, Stephen died and Nellie returned with an urn of ashes and said that is all she had left of her wonderful husband, Stephen. It turns out that the wonderful couple wanted to avoid prosecution for fraud, and Stephen had faked his own death. Did she get the boobs, though? That's the important question. Did she get her boobs? She did. Okay. She She got her boobs. Okay, so the story's going to end well. Okay, good. She has her boobs. She's got her boobs. She has nice boobs. Well, okay, listen. I mean, the Russian, they might not have been nice. Yeah, well... It ended up for Nellie. Nellie, Nellie got it all. So okay. She got her breast augmentation surgery. Okay. So it turns out Stephen had bribed a worker in a Moscow mortuary to put a dead stamp on his passport. It cost him a bottle of vodka. Damn. So now you know why you go to Russia, because I don't think in Canada it's that easy. I don't think they just <laughs> can't bribe him with a bottle, bottle of liquor. Here you go. You're dead. Okay. Good point. So, Good point. They had been claiming government benefits like help because they didn't have any money while owning five properties worth 1.7 million pounds. Do they not do, do they not do like checks on people? (laughs) Well, they, I think were getting caught fairly quickly. I think that, you know, they lied on all their paperwork. And then after a little while, I think the government was on to them, which is why they were faking their own death because they were about to get busted big time. 
And I think Stephen was on all the paperwork. So he's like, hey, if I'm not here, you claim innocence and you get a boob job, you get my insurance, and we'll make this work. Okay. So, yeah, and they were sending their kids to private school. So, you know. Priorities. Okay. In total, they had received 43,000 pounds in fraudulent benefits from the government. After faking his death, Stephen went to Bangkok on a fake visa, again the fake visa, using the name of a dead boy. Where do these people find fake visas with, like, how do you get a fake visa with a dead person's name? It's really that easy? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. The plan was for his family to join him in Thailand and live off his three life insurance policies worth 1.7 million pounds. That's not suspicious either. I mean, if you're receiving government benefits, you have life insurance policies worth that much? Yeah, well, they were already being busted for it, so... But the okay. best laid plan, as they say. 2011, three years later, Stephen is actually tracked down in Thailand, living under an assumed name by a reporter for the mail. He turned him into Thai authorities who deported him, and where he was promptly arrested by the British police. He told reporters he was inspired by John Darwin. My previous story. And it looks like it worked out just about as well for Stephen as it did for John. He, like John, pled guilty to four counts of fraud, and he received a 32-month sentence. Nellie not only got her boob job, but she got arrested. She pled not guilty, but she was able to convince the courts that Stephen was abusive and forced her to go along with the scheme, and she got off with a suspended sentence. There you go. Holy shit. All right. Wow. That's a lot of not dead people we covered today. It's interesting how some of them all tied back to each other, too. Yeah. Yeah, there were several that tied together. And it's interesting because Johanna said, you know, it's not easy to do. But the interesting thing is, it would seem like we found a lot of these people. But for all the people we found, how many people are out there that have faked their own death and got away with it that you'd never know because they're just considered dead? So we really, there's no way to say if this is a successful kind of crime or if it's not as easy. Or do we just not call it a crime because maybe some people, you know, they fake their own death, but then they just go on to live other lives and never commit another crime or never do anything wrong. Well, and as we already talked about, technically, quote unquote, faking your own death isn't actually against the law. I mean, yeah, if you do it not to get out of paying for a crime that you've committed. As long as you aren't committing any other crimes along the way. Yeah, I mean. Or doing it in order to commit a crime, then yeah. Yeah. I imagine there's a lot of them that we are not aware of. It's a good question. But there are also an insane amount of them that have been busted. Alrighty. Well, thank you, everyone. We hope that you enjoyed this. Yeah, we hope you did. It was good. It was fun. A lot of craziness. Um, if you have uh, unsuccessfully faked your own death, we'd love to hear from you. Oh, hell yes, we would have. We'll put you right on the if podcast. If you have successfully faked your own death, we'd love to hear from you, too. Yes. Yes, yeah. we would. Yeah. That would be cool. <laughs> we, we promise to keep you anonymous. 
Yes, we will keep you an anonymous secret. We will not not spill the beans. We promise. Okay, and just to just to clarify Lynn's statement at the beginning, this is not the last episode. <laughs> you get us every no. week. <laughs> yes, April Fools. We'll be back. We hope your um, April Fools Day has been most enjoyable. We love you. Have an amazing day. Bye guys. Bye. Bye.